On this episode of Blue 58, welcome to the Packers coaching search extravaganza. Are you ready for a grueling month or maybe even longer of exhausting speculation? I hope so, because we're not getting out of this anytime soon. To kick things off, we're taking some time to answer your questions about the Packers, including whether or not they should tank and how they might be able to turn Kenny Clark into even more of a monster than he already is. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one, the only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. I am excited to be with you here in this brave new world of Packers football. Mike McCarthy is gone. Joe Philbin has the interim job and we're just waiting to see what happens next. We already know one thing about this coaching search. It's going to take a while. Mark Murphy says he doesn't want to make a decision until after the season. When does that mean exactly? Does it mean the conclusion of the regular season? Does it mean the conclusion of the postseason after the Super Bowl? We could be here a while. This could take a while. We already know the head coach isn't going to be Cliff Kingsbury, so I'm glad we got that one out of the way right away with our speculation at thepowersweep.com. We're going to be doing capsules on some of the the notable names um, in the coaching search as this week or so goes on, we're going to try to get ahead of this as much as we can. So keep an eye out for that. So no coaching decision made already, but it's going to be, well, it's going to be interesting here over the next uh, next little while in Green Bay, as it should be. This is, this is going to be interesting and fun to watch on the whole. But in the meantime, we got to play some football games. And to do that, you've got to have a roster of 53 football players. And the Packers added one and subtracted one today, keeping them at 53, of course. Ibrahim Campbell is going to injured reserve, taking his place outside linebacker Kendall Donerson. Pick number 248 in this spring's draft. Uh, Part of the trade indirectly uh, involving the first-round pick um, when the Packers traded up and, and got Jair Alexander. He was the pick, one of the picks they picked up from Seattle in that trade. What we wrote then is pretty much the same as what we know about Donerson now. Uh, so I'll just read you back a little bit of what we wrote, uh, what we wrote about Donerson at the time. Seventh round picks are a little more than lottery tickets. Very few of them make any kind of real impact, but if any of them do, the payoff can be big. Donerson is one of those potentially big payoffs. He posted absolutely ridiculous numbers at his pro day, including a 4-4-5 40-yard dash, a 40-inch vertical leap, and a nearly 11-foot broad jump. But like so many of the Packers' athletic draft picks this year, his production didn't necessarily match his testing. He managed just six sacks in his three years of playing time at Southeast Missouri, and his tackle numbers weren't necessarily what you'd expect from someone whose athleticism clearly outranks his competition. Is he a good player? Possibly someday, but not right now. Is he a good athlete? Yes, and then some. End quote. All still pretty much true, and we saw some of that in the preseason. Very, very good athlete. Does some interesting things with that athleticism. He may not be ready to produce yet, but it's time to bring him up and get a look at him, see what he can do. At the very least, in the short term, maybe for the rest of this year, maybe even into next year, he seems like the kind of guy who's going to be a special teams maven. Uh, Just big, strong, and fast, and those are the things that you can look for for guys who contribute on special teams. So if you turn a big, fast guy loose on special teams, Maybe good things happen, and that's worth keeping a keeping an eye out on the me, or in the meantime. Let's get to your questions. We have let's see one, two, three, four, five really really good questions here, and that should take us through the balance of this episode. Um, so let's let's dive right in. Starting with Jack, uh, Jack asks a question about the timing of Mike McCarthy's firing. Specifically, why didn't they fire McCarthy last year when they brought in a new general manager? 
That's a simple answer, but not necessarily a satisfying one. And the, the simple answer is this. McCarthy had a lot of support. Keyword there had a lot of support within the organization at the time. Uh, he was not viewed last year as part of the problem within the top brass. And that, you know, top brass doesn't necessarily include the GM. Uh, as far as we're concerned, or for the, the purposes of this question, the top brass means Mark Murphy and the executive board. Further to that point, his firing was pretty much very clearly on the, not on the table for one simple reason. Start to finish in the general manager process, McCarthy was involved in that process. He was in on the interviews for general manager. And I don't think uh, McCarthy is the sort of person who's inclined to more or less call for his own firing. He doesn't want to hire a guy who's interested in bringing in his own head coach, which should be pointed out, is a very bad arrangement. It seems like a big conflict of interest to have a guy whose job could be in the hands of the next guy involved in hiring that next guy. So that was that was frustrating to see, but that's the that's the real answer why McCarthy wasn't fired. It would be interesting to rewind this tape of our lives and the universe, I guess, and see how this situation played out if Gutekunst Brian Gutekunst was given the power to fire Mike McCarthy at the time. Would he have done it? I wonder. I don't think we'll ever get a satisfactory answer to that question. We do know that Gutekunst was not informed that he wouldn't have the power to hire and fire his own head coach until relatively late in the process, and it turned out that he was fine with that, but it was a surprise for him. So could the Packers have gotten one of these hotshot candidates if they had been in the market for a head coach a year ago? Don't know, and we'll never know. But that'll be one of the interesting footnotes in this this head coaching search, and one to remember. Anthony asks a related question. Do you have faith in Mark Murphy to pick, pick the next head coach? I do have faith in Mark Murphy um, for a couple reasons. First, we don't have any other choice. Nobody else is going to be making this call. So it's going to be Mark Murphy slash the executive board uh, making this call. Nobody's riding to the rescue here, and Murphy does not seem to be inclined to give up the responsibility to make the call on the head coach. But secondly, I have some faith in Mark Murphy to pick this next head coach because he seems to have made it pretty clear so far that even if he makes the final call, Brian Gutekunst is going to have a substantial role in making the call. So that's good for me to see and hear. And as I said on the last episode, I don't know if it's necessarily the end of the world if Gutekunst doesn't have the final, final word on who the head coach is, as long as he and Murphy are in agreement on who the coach should be, and it seems like that's going to be the plan going forward for them to try to get into alignment on that before they make a hire together, as long as he's on board with whoever it is, and as long as Gutekunst retains full control over the roster, I'm not sure it's the end of the world if he doesn't get to make the absolute final call. It, would it be ideal if he did? Yeah, I think so. But um, I don't think it, it necessarily ruins the franchise that he doesn't. But expanding on this question a little bit, I want to reserve judgment on what we think about Mark Murphy and this whole process until we get further into the process. But do remember, there is a two-part test for decisions. You get to grade the process and you get to grade the outcome. 
A good example of that is last year's general manager search. I liked the outcome of the decision that Murphy made. I think Gutekunst was a good choice for GM, perhaps the best choice of the candidates they had, although we can't say that for sure because we don't know how the other candidates would have performed. But I don't think at the time, and even now, I was a big fan or am a big fan of Murphy's process. Hiring a search firm was a bad look. Not having an immediate list of candidates seemed like a bad look and a misstep. Having to wait until Gutekunst was in another town getting ready to interview for a different job to offer him the job is borderline malpractice. And then not telling him until he was ready to accept that he didn't have the power over the head coach is a bit of a head scratcher. I'm not exactly sure where in that process that came up, but late in the game, he was informed that was not going to be part of his job. They ended up with what I think is the right conclusion or a good conclusion, but there's still a lot of room for errors in that process, even if you ended up in the right spot. That is a little concerning to me, but I do trust him to get to the right spot for the uh, the reasons I laid out earlier. So, cautiously optimistic is how I would describe myself about Mark Murphy. Um, I think it's good overall that he is involved more in football stuff because he was pretty much at a zero before. And you see a lot of stuff going around about how he, he, I guess there are stuff, people portraying him as a little bit power hungry right now. I don't know if that's an accurate or fair representation of the things that he's doing. Because the fact of the matter is he didn't have any involvement in football decisions until a little under a year ago. Any involvement now is going to seem like a dramatic shift for him. But he probably should have been more involved than he was in the past. And that's probably the reason the Packers are in the situation that they've been in the last year and a half to two years or so. Because he wasn't as involved. If he had been more involved, say, after the 2015 season and the Packers just make wholesale changes then... Perhaps the Packers don't have to go through uh, the 2017 season and get their roster gutted and start essentially quasi from scratch in 2018 and then go through all this again. You had some bumps in the road there because Murphy wasn't involved as he should have been. And I don't think you get to say that Murphy should have been more involved then and then criticize him for getting more involved now. He does have to get more involved now because he wasn't in the past and it's going to seem like an, an overcorrection. So maybe it is an overcorrection in some aspects, but maybe an overcorrection is is necessary. Callum asks, well, Callum's question is not phrased in an easy-to-answer way, but let's let's lay out what Callum says here. Um, I want to use his words here because he kind of asks two questions. First, a new head coach is almost certainly going to be offense. I agree. We have to keep petting, don't we? His defense has generated pressure and sacks without any real pass rushers. Players seem to have improved under his coaching. Could we have hoped for more? Well, let's answer the second question first. No, I don't think there's a lot more we could hope for from Petten this year, especially given the relatively limited deck that he's been given to play with this year. Packers didn't do anything in the offseason to improve their edge rush or their safety position and have only lost players throughout the season. Uh, They don't have a Nick Perry anymore. They don't have HaHa Clinton Dix. They don't even have most of the guys they've tried to use to replace HaHa Clinton Dix. It's been a little bit of an adventure for Mike Pettin. I think not playing with a full deck, though usually usually an indictment of someone's mental capabilities, is uh, an apt descriptor of the way that Mike Pettin has had to play his hand this year. So to circle back to the first part there, do we have to keep him? 
Um, well, I would be inclined to keep him, and I hope he's around, but whether or not he is around is going to depend hugely on who the Packers hire. Philosophically, the defense may not be in alignment with what the head coach's goals are, and it's yet to be seen how much leeway the next head coach has over the coaching staff. I mean, is Mark Murphy going to want to be involved in, in keeping certain play, people around? Is he going to say you can you can hire or you can bring in whoever you want on offense, but Mike Pettin is going to have control over the guys on defense. Is a head coaching candidate going to be interested in those things? There's a lot of variables to consider here. I think there's a strong chance that Pettin is going to have the opportunity to stay around, but it may not be up to him. And it may not be... It, it may be that Pettin is not interested in sticking around either. There is a relatively recent historical precedent for this because Jim Bates was a defensive coordinator for the Packers in the late Mike, Mike Sherman era and had the opportunity to interview to be the next head coach of the Packers. When he did not get that job, Mike McCarthy asked if he wanted to stay around as the defensive coordinator, and he said, hmm, no, not interested. Now, Mike Pettin says that he doesn't want to be the head coach of the Packers or anybody else, but it's possible that he may not want to stick around with an organization that's going through this many changes either. I don't know. That's up to Mike Pettin. He seems like a pretty thoughtful guy, pretty even-keeled. He doesn't seem prone to emotional reactions, but he is a human being at the end of the day. So there's some variables on his end to consider too. I hope he sticks around. I like what he's done. I like listening to him talk. I think he's a great and interesting coach, and uh, I hope he's a, a guy that the Packers can keep. This next one's a doozy. Should the Packers tank? This one doesn't come from anyone in particular, though I had one discussion at length with somebody about this. You know who you are. Shout out to you. Hope things are, are great in Sweden right now. But multiple people have asked, and not all to me directly, just have seen this question around Packers internet, should the Packers tank? And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to consider the definition of, of tanking to be trying to lose as many games as you can by putting yourself in a position to lose those games, not actively trying to win. Well, no, I want to want to narrow that definition even a little further. Not, It's not it's not not actively trying to win, but it is actively trying to lose. So hamstringing yourself so you are going to lose games. There. That's what I, I think tanking is for the purposes of our discussion. Why I make that distinction is going to become important here as we get to the end of this question. But first, let's look at some of these supposed benefits of tanking. I think there are three. You get a better draft pick. You get a chance to evaluate some young players. And you don't risk serious injury to key players. So let's let's start with number one here. You get a better draft pick. Does this actually work in the NFL? I'm not actually sure. Because there are so many different variables in, that go into having a successful draft pick in the NFL. There's so many more positions than there are in other sports. And the way that those players play is so much more dependent on coaching than in other sports. In the NBA, the sport I think most commonly associated with tanking, if you get a guy who's good at basketball, 
it pretty much doesn't matter what position he plays. Just look at the guys who are successful in the NBA. They range from Steph Curry to LeBron James to Kevin Durant. Each of those three guys is incredibly different in their body types and their skill sets, but each of them, and that's probably the top three players in the NBA right now, in some order. I'm not interested in having that that discussion. But you can build a championship team around each of those guys. And you could build a unique championship team around just one of those guys. And if you added any one of those guys to any team in the NBA, that team instantly becomes a championship contender. Tanking can have that much of an effect in the NBA. I'm not sure the effect is the same in the NFL. And for that matter, the Packers really aren't one player away. No team in the NFL is one player away. The goal of the draft this year and every year is to make your team as good as possible from, the, from top to bottom. Getting better at multiple spots is better. Otherwise, everybody else, everybody would try to trade up to the number one pick every year or into the top 10 every year if one player could make that much of a difference. But that having been said, losing more games does get you in position to have more picks closer to the top of the draft outside of the first round. Here's what we said almost 100 episodes ago when the Packers were facing a similar situation last year. In 2016, this is the example we used when talking about tanking last year. In 2016, the Denver Broncos finished 9-7. and seven. Their top two draft picks were 19-51. and 51. Even though they were only one game worse than the Packers, they still only got one shot at a player in the top 50. The Colts finished one game worse at 8-8. Eight and eight. With those picks, or with that record, they picked 15th and 48th. Two opportunities at top 50 picks. The more players near the top of the draft that you can draft, chances are your team is going to be better. So while it may not necessarily be the best strategy to try to lose as many games and trade as many picks as you can to get to the top of the draft, I can't deny, as much as I hate to admit it, there is benefit towards picking at the top of the at the top of the draft, at the top of every round. That effect, of course, diminishes over time, but it's there early. And the more players that you can pick in those top 50 to 100 picks, the better. That tends to be where the good players are. So there is at least a partial benefit there. The second supposed benefit of tanking is that you get to evaluate younger players. I'm a little less wishy-washy on this one. I think if you're going to try to evaluate players, evacuate players, Packers might like to evacuate their team right now from this season and just save everybody till next year and not even play any games. I'm not sure that there's anybody on your team that you're going to try to evaluate via this tanking process that you wouldn't be able to evaluate otherwise. You only get to have 46 guys active on game day anyway. Who, like, what is the guy who's missing out on being on the 46-man active roster who you're really serious about evaluating anyway? I mean, your third quarterback? Eh. Uh, your seventh defensive back? Eh. I don't know. And you still got to suit up 46 anyway. If you start eliminating many more than that, you uh, you get 
into some dicey territory there. And that kind of brings us to the third point that you might not want to play some of your key players because you don't want to expose them to injury. It starts getting a little bit dicey here because who who is defined as a key player? Uh, do you sit David, Doc, David Bakhtiari down? Okay, he's probably a key player, but with Alex Light and Jason Spriggs then as your top two tackles, assuming Brian Bulaga doesn't play either, are you really going to get a great chance to evaluate Deshaun Kaiser? Yeah, I think uh, I think that might be pretty tough. Also, I think you want to be careful about sending the message that you don't value people's contributions by just deciding to cash things in and maybe not put yourself in a position to win games. Think about what David Bakhtiari went through just to play in last week's game. He had injuries to both knees, and he went through a grueling week of practice and rehab just to get ready to play this past Sunday. Now you're just gonna now you're just gonna say, eh, "Sorry, David, you tried, but we're gonna sit you down and just you know roll the ball out there for the last few weeks, and and you know what happens happens." Sorry, you tried hard. That is kind of invalidating. And I know these guys are professionals and they can they can deal with it, but still, there's a human element to this too. So where does that leave the Packers? I think it's a little bit like last year. You may not want to go out of your way to lose games, the actual tank, but it may not always be in your best interest to go out of your way to win them either. So I think you want to kind of take a middle road here. You may want to try to play as many young players as you can while also not taking so much away from your team that it doesn't allow you to be competitive. I mean, look what happens in preseason games when one team goes to their second unit way ahead of when the other team does. That team doesn't get a chance to look at those guys on the second unit because they get just get shellacked. They get pushed around by other guys. And that makes it hard to evaluate your team as a whole. I think about this in the case of like Deshaun Kaiser and Aaron Rodgers. Um, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of people arguing for getting a, a chance to look at Deshaun Kaiser and see what you have there. First, if you don't know what you have in Deshaun Kaiser by now, I mean, are you really ever going to? I mean, he's he's been around this team for, what, nine months now? Eight months? It, it kind of feels like you should have a pretty good feel for what he is. You saw him in four preseason games. What more do you need? I mean, if you're going to make the case that, well, we didn't really know about Brett Hundley, did we? I mean, everything we saw from Brett Hundley during 2017 when he started was not all that different from what he he did in the preseason. You go back and look at his actual preseason tape. He was a one-read-and-go-and-run quarterback. The difference was... Playing against second and third and fourth stringers, that first read was open more often than not. So that he the the fact that he had that laser focus on one guy at a time didn't really hurt him. So I think you're you're getting into difficult situation there when you, you start assuming that you don't have a a real good grasp on who these players are. And also, Deshaun Kaiser is never going to be the starting quarterback for the Packers. It doesn't matter what you think about him. All, all that you need from your backup quarterback is a break, cla- break glass in case of emergency type player. An absolute emergency. I mean, if, if Mitchell Trubisky was 
you know, the caliber of player, 75% of the caliber of player that Aaron Rodgers is right now, Chase Daniel wouldn't be playing. The only reason Chase Daniel is playing in Chicago is because he's close to as good as Mitchell Trubisky is already. If you're relying on your backup quarterback to be as good as your starter, he'd better be close to as good as your starter already. Deshaun Kaiser isn't. So why why bother putting him out there even in games that don't matter a whole lot? Unless you're really worried about a, a career or season-ending injury to Aaron Rodgers. It Whenever we talk about playing backup quarterbacks extensively, even in games that don't matter or games that have no effect in the standings, I, I, remind, I am reminded of uh, a saying from the from Tom Moore, the old Indianapolis Colts offensive coordinator. Um, there is an obscene version of this quote, but I will clean it up a little bit in the interest of keeping this a family show. You'll be able to tell which, which word has changed. A uh, reporter was at practice with the Colts and uh, saw Peyton Manning taking absolutely every practice rep with the, with the Colts offense. And somebody asked more, you know, why, is, why aren't the backups getting any reps here? Don't you want them to be ready in case Peyton Manning goes down? And Moore just kind of looked at him and, the, you know, the old football coach voice that you can only really picture if you've ever been around an old football coach for any amount of time. He says, if 18 goes down, we're screwed, and we don't practice screwed. If Aaron Rodgers goes down, the Packers are screwed. Why practice screwed now? Just doesn't really matter. Winding up this very long answer to a pretty simple question, based on last year, the Packers are going to finish the season, well, as we know, the Packers are going to finish the season between four and eight wins. They've got four wins now, and the most they can have by the end of the season is eight. Probably closer right now to four than eight, but we'll see as the year goes on. Last year, the highest anybody got in the draft order with four wins was third overall, and the lowest anybody got with eight wins was 15th. At seven and nine last year, the Packers were 14th. Currently, the Packers are picking 10th. A related point to draft order. Don't even bother reading mock drafts right now. There's a lot of them coming out now that we're a month away from the end of the season. Just don't even bother. Don't waste your time. There's, there's going to be plenty of time for that later on. Final question. Edward asks, in what I think is a phenomenal, very interesting question, was thinking about your observations on Kenny Clark's incredible stats from the nose tackle position. Was wondering whether you agree with me that if we played a 4-3 defense, he would record even better stats, perhaps unplayable. Let's take a quick look at Kenny Clark's stats because uh, I pointed out last week that his stats over the last 16 games were just incredible. A half sack has fallen off his total, but they still are pretty incredible. Over his last 16 games, he has nine sacks, 11 tackles for loss, 12 quarterback hits, one fumble forced, two fumbles recovered, and three passes defensed. Kenny Clark does a little bit of everything. He's phenomenal. So what would a 4-3 defense do for Kenny Clark? Well, in a 4-3 defense, Kenny Clark, as a defensive tackle, would probably be lined up as a three-technique tackle because of his phenomenal quickness and pass rushing ability. What does that mean? Well, on offense, numbers tell you which hole to run to. In most offenses, the even numbers go to the right, the odd numbers go to the left. So if you're running, you know, and this is going to be different for a lot of different offenses, but say you're running a play that ends with four, you're going to be running between, let me recall my football playbooks, you're going to be running between the right guard and the right tackle, between those two guys, between the right shoulder of the right guard and the left shoulder of the right tackle. That's the four. But on defense, numbers tell you where to line up. 
starting from zero, you count upwards in both directions. Zero is head up directly in front of the nose tackle, and you count one, two, three, four, five, and so on to your right and to your left. As a nose tackle, Kenny Clark tends to play either a zero or a one technique. That's head up directly over the center or slightly to either shoulder. That means he has responsibility either to both sides of the center as the zero or in occupying both the center and the guard as a one technique because in a 3-4 defense or a 3-4 alignment, the job of the defensive lineman is to occupy as many offensive linemen as they can so the linebackers and outside linebackers can run around and make tackles and get to the quarterback. In a 4-3 as a three technique, he would be on the outside shoulder of the guard. Either one, it doesn't matter. And when you're at the three technique, your job is to get upfield between the guard and the tackle. And I think this would be pretty phenomenal for Kenny Clark. And the good news is that he already does some of this. Watch him during Packers games and you'll see him pretty frequently lining up either head up over the guard or on the guard's outside shoulder. That's a pretty classic three technique. Montrevious Adams also does this from time to time, and that's probably the best use of Montrevious Adams that we can, we can have right now. Here's some slightly bad news. I don't know if the Packers really have the personnel right now for a full switch to a 4-3, and I don't even know if they want to. I think it tends to be a little bit easier to find a bunch of smaller, quicker edge-rushing types than the bigger bodies you need to run a true 4-3. Because remember, in a 4-3, you need those bigger defensive end types um, so that you can uh, you can have four true down linemen. In a 3-4, you just need... You need fewer bigger bodies. You do tend to need bigger guys, but you need fewer of them, obviously, three versus four. But here's some good news to overshadow that bad news. Base defenses really don't matter anymore. Mike Pettin says this, our dearly departed Mike McCarthy, like to say this all the time. It's a sub-league now. So it really doesn't matter if you're a 3-4 or a 4-3. Sometimes you'll play three defensive linemen. Sometimes you'll play four. Sometimes you'll play three and a bigger outside linebacker. It really doesn't matter because you're not going to play your true base all that much anymore anyway, just because you're always responding to what offenses do with their personnel packages. What you got to do is just put your best guys in position to what they do best. And I think Kenny Clark is just getting better and better at what he does every week. So as long as the Packers have a defensive coordinator who puts Kenny Clark in position to do what he does well, I think you're going to be just fine. So whether that's playing a little bit of nose, playing a little bit of three technique, playing some five technique as an end, whatever, as long as you're putting him in position to make life difficult for opposing offenses, I think you're doing a good job. While I've got you here, I want to take a second to talk about two interesting things from the coaching search that we've seen already. It's been interesting to post some of these articles about coaching candidates on our Facebook and Twitter pages already because Everybody seems to have calcified into their positions already, and we are less than three full days into this. The most common reactions to every one of these posts already is, yes, get this guy, or no, absolutely not. You cannot get this guy. Here's who you need. There is only one solution to this, and everybody else is bad. It's funny. Everybody already has their one guy in mind, and that is the only possible solution to this coaching search. The second interesting thing that I've seen is people just saying, well, just bring him in for an interview. There's a coaching candidate out there, but just bring him in. Just bring him in. Just that easy, huh? Just bring him in for an interview. We're forgetting that there are two parts to this equation. 
the Packers part, and the other guy. He's got to want to come in for an interview, and he's got to be able to come in for an interview. Lincoln Riley is pretty busy between now and the end of the year. I don't know if you've heard. Are you going to be able to just bring him in for an interview? Does he want to just come in for an interview? And more to the point, these high-end college coaches are a different kind of animal than just uh, just hiring a coordinator or poaching a coordinator from somebody else's staff or hiring, hiring a guy who's been out of coaching for a couple of years. A few years ago, when the Packers were in the mood for a, a coaching change, they wanted to hire, or they not wanted to hire, but they wanted to interview Frank Beamer, formerly of Virginia Tech. The Packers didn't bring him in for an interview. They sent somebody to him. And Beamer was a mid-tier to upper-tier ACC coach. You really think the head man in Norman is going to fly into Austin Strobel Airport and take a hired car to Lambeau in the middle of his bowl season? You think Nick Saban is just going to make some time in his schedule to fly up to Green Bay between now and the end of January? I don't think so. So just bringing him in for an interview is just not that easy. (laughs) And one last word on Nick Saban. I saw people saying that he should be a candidate. There's something we need to get straight about Nick Saban. He might be a great candidate, but Nick Saban is not ever going to be a head coaching candidate. When you have a head coaching opening, you are the candidate, and Nick Saban decides on you. He is either your coach or not your coach, but he will be the decider. You are the candidate to get him out of Alabama, where he has won many national titles. You will have to convince him why he should come coach for you, not the other way around. Nick Saban is a, is a different animal entirely than some of these other big-name college coaches that we've talked about. That's all I've got for you on this particular episode. Thank you very much for listening. Continue to send your thoughts to us about this coaching search. I am interested in any and all coaching ideas. There are no bad ones. Let's get weird with this. Who knows what can happen? You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com. Keep an eye out there for updates about this coaching search. And as we work through the list of candidates that we have, and as more names come on, we'll be writing about them and talking about them. Keep an eye out there. You can uh, follow our our work on Facebook and on Twitter and reach out to us uh, via email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Support us if you would be so kind at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. One dollar a month helps us defray our costs for putting all of this together. If you'd like to support us financially and look good as you do it, buy one of our fine t-shirts or sweatshirts at teespring.com. Click the store link at thepowersweep.com to find your way there. Or, if you would like to take the freest and easiest option for supporting the Power Suite, leave us a review on iTunes or the podcast listening service of your choice. That will help more people find the show. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and make this into a better show. It helps all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been John Meerdink, your host. We will see you next week next time on Blue 58.